Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Cloud Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Welcome back to another episode of the show. This is going out on YouTube and also available on all podcast platforms. So go check us out on YouTube, new YouTube channel or reintroduction to the channel at Lion Cook Thoughts on YouTube. And then obviously Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast if you're listening in the podcast space is available on every platform. Welcome to episode 191. We are getting very close to episode 200 and very excited for that. It's kind of crazy the volume of episodes in the catalog currently and it's just a testament to the fun I have creating content for the audience. So thank you all for listening and following along. Today's episode will be a solo episode and I'm going to be diving into two topics. The first is going to be Mr. Beast Burger. I've become very fascinated with ghost kitchens and more so the influencer led ones. There's a ton out there, but one of the, if not the, probably the most successful is the Mr. Beast Burger ghost kitchen model. And I wanted to just go and do a little bit of a deep dive into this model because I think it's super important to know what is going on from a food business perspective as someone in the food industry. And I know that there is a lot of negatives for in regards to ghost kitchens. And I know this isn't meant to be like a promotion of them, but I do think it's important, especially for chefs, especially for those in the next, who are going to be in the industry in the next 10, 20 years to understand that business is being driven in many different ways than we've seen even five years ago. And post-COVID, to still see the success that Mr. Beast has in the creator, who the, you know, that he's had with restaurants alone is astounding. It, it truly blew my mind looking at the numbers. So I'm going to go over that. I've also done a Mr. Beast review, so you can check that out on YouTube. That's going live today as well, so go check that out on my YouTube channel. And lastly, in this episode, I wanted to talk about a piece that the Washington Post put out recently. It is called, When Michelin, when Michelin Tells Chefs They've Lost Their Stars and Mental Health is Top of Mind. And it's by Annabelle Timsit at the Washington Post. It was posted on March 2nd of this year. And I found there was some very interesting insights about Michelin looking into basically telling chefs when they've lost a star and understanding the mental health implications of that. And I just wanted to kind of do a little bit of a riff on my thoughts on that, my thoughts on how... You know, often I think on this podcast, I'm very hard on the Michelin rating system. And I, I've shared that I don't see the, I don't see how it's a net positive for a lot of people in the food industry, but I think I want to flip it this episode and talk more so about as diners, as guests, as people who consume that, how we are affecting chefs and how we are putting chefs in a negative spot. So I find it very interesting. That is what the solo podcast is about today. Before we begin the podcast, a friendly reminder that I do a newsletter every Monday. I put it out. It's called Prepless Items. You can go to linecookthoughts.com and enter your email. Please subscribe. I've had so many people subscribe. I enjoy doing it every week. It's so much fun and I just hope you check it out. And also lastly, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. That is all. Let's get into the solo episode. starting out with Mr. Beast Burger. So I'll be honest, I was not really aware of the content Mr. Beast put out. Uh, I mean, I know about the giveaways and everything else, and I know he's a tremendous influencer and he has a stupid amount of fans, but I wasn't really aware of what he was doing. And I had never really tried Mr. Beast Burger uh, or really any influencer uh, ghost kitchen ran uh, food product. It's not really, I don't think it's meant to appeal to someone like myself. Obviously, I like to cook. I like to go out to restaurants that are in my area. Uh, it's not really meant for me. But 
I do think that it is meant, it has been meant for a lot of people and the growth and the acceleration of growth that he has had through this and that that concept has had is pretty insane. And so basically I just want to start out with like the origin story. This is all stuff I've found online. I've gone to their website. I've gone on the company's website that owns this. And so this was founded on November 10th, 2020. And the first location opened up in Wilson, North Carolina. The grand opening done was done by having a large event and campaign of just, it's a grand opening for the restaurant or for the Mr. Beast Burger concept. And with that came car giveaways, technology giveaways, and money giveaways. And it was reported that on that day, you know, they did so well at marketing the opening of Mr. Beast Burger that the drive through line lasted 20 miles. It was a 20-mile line to get a Mr. Beast Burger on its first day. That's crazy. That is insane. Could you, like, think about that. Like, I, that's longer than what I drive to work daily. That's how long the line was to get these burgers. So, obviously, Mr. Beast has done a tremendous amount of work to build up his brand, build up the people that follow him, and then he deployed it. He deployed it into the food industry, into the food sector, and it met, was met with great success. After three months, Mr. Beast Burger passed one million burgers sold. And they did this through a lot of interesting and different marketing techniques. You know, that one time they had like a Shrek quesadilla. They've had other influencers have their own menu items. And I think for me, you know, looking at it from a business perspective and looking at it through the lens of someone who's managed uh, kitchens and operations, their menu is pretty simple. You know, it's a couple hamburgers, you know, a couple cheeseburgers, a couple chicken sandwiches. They don't really, they don't have desserts. They just have like, you can't get a milkshake, which is a gripe of mine. Um, but you, it's just like basic sodas, fries, and that's it. And the only the other thing you can buy through like an Uber Eats is merch off of this. But all that to say is that it's a very simple menu that can be implemented throughout many, many different locations. And you know, you can go watch my review on Mr. Beast Burger, but I'll tell you that it's it's just an average burger at best. Uh, you know, they're the integrity of a burger traveling in a box from the restaurant to my doorstep in 40 minutes obviously is a big factor i think there's some interesting things they do they use spicy brown mustard which i really enjoyed and then the fries themselves i mean i already like i for fries that sat for 40 minutes they weren't that bad i am not a fan of american cheese melted onto fries i think it's a terrible way to create a cheese fry but all in all it tasted pretty good because again i think spicy brown mustard saves their flavor uh and so therefore saves the eating experience my rant over on uh, their food. But that being said, it's an average burger at best. It is nothing that will blow your mind. And I definitely have my more favorite um, burger corporate chains, I guess you would call them, Shake Shack being my top. I love Shake Shack. So anyway, great marketing ideas, you know, getting the Shrek IP from Universal to make a Shrek quesadilla and all this stuff. So built up this legacy brand in Mr. Beast, deployed it, and worked with a company called Virtual Dining Concepts. So this is a ghost kitchen company that specifically targets targets creators and celebrities for their dining concepts. Other celebrities using it are um, the Phase Burger Group, Phase Clan. I, I don't know much about the internet uh, people like that. Uh, Guy Fieri has a, a brand on there, and Mariah Carey has Mariah's Cookies on there. So it's this virtual dining concepts really focuses in on the influencer celebrity branded ghost kitchen mr beast being their best and most brightest example of things gone right it's very interesting you know they're like look at our uh, <laughs> look at our um success stories and mr beast is obviously like one of the biggest ones on there and i think it's like oh you know he's had such he has such a huge following that of course it was going to be successful but 
they can also use it. So it's interesting to see. So basically what the company does, Virtual Dining Concepts, is they help creators, celebs, or any restaurateur with packaging, promotion, and finding brick-and-mortar kitchens willing to cook and produce the food. Now, a lot of these kitchens are, uh, some of them can be independent restaurants, and that's kind of like if your pro-ghost kitchen is one of the ideas is, oh, well, an independent restaurant, especially during COVID, that was struggling to get customers or diners to order their food online, could also run a virtual brand out of their restaurant. The reality is that a lot of these concepts are being uh, taken up by other corporate chains, other corporate restaurants. If you see them in the, your neighborhood, you know who they are. And oftentimes, a lot of these restaurants will have four to five different brands that they're cooking for. And, you know, like I said, the ghost kitchen concept, it's a very simple menu. It has to be. It has to be able to be implemented. You think of a McDonald's, it has to be simpler than that because these recipes have to be implemented throughout all these different kitchens and deliver on the same flavor, at least the good ones. You know, obviously there could be variation and there could be a lack of understanding of how to get the uh, difference across. But that being said, that is what these ghost kitchens do. So I did a little bit more digging into virtual dining um, concepts and it was created by the former CEO of Hard Rock Cafe. Hard Rock Cafe obviously being very popular uh, restaurant for you know I grew up in uh, Niagara Falls New York so near me there is one it's like a big tourist restaurant to go to uh, but it uh, was created by Robert Earl they did a series a funding round of 20 million dollars uh, and that was the funding to start this so in its first quarter the brand had um, Mr. Beast had 300 locations available digitally and were sold more than 1 million burgers as we mentioned before and he now has over 1700 locations nationwide digitally so that's 1700 restaurants that are serving Mr. Beast food that are cooking his food preparing it to guests for a digital experience digital dining order experience which is astounding because Applebee's has 1600 locations obviously physical locations but they've been around for decades now obviously it makes sense that Deploying a ghost kitchen, you can, you're able to not have to be confined by brick and mortar. You just need someone in that area, in that vicinity to cook the food. So it's easier to grow, but it still blows my mind that like a, comp, a restaurant that is so, you know, has been around for so long, like Applebee's, a corporate chain like that. And Mr. Beast was able to, you know, beat them at in terms of, of locations throughout the United States. I find that very crazy. So the trend in the Mr. Beast burger blowing up is that the younger generation has you know more spending power and it needs to be captured in different ways and looking into restaurants this is a big point i want to go home the younger generation needs engaging brands that make them want to spend their dollars with that said brand and so if you look at mr beast burger i, I know a lot of people like turn their nose up at it i think a lot of people obviously it's a ghost kitchen and like i said before there's a lot of um there's a lot of negativity around ghost kitchens and like I said not advocating for them but I think to be able to look at where consumers are at and especially for independent restaurants those that are trying to get their name out there engaging brands engaging yourself with customers I think is super important and this is only um, shown even more my my by Mr. Beast Burger and obviously not not at his scale he's obviously so different but having you know your ordering your dining concepts having your ordering just who you are as a restaurant to be engaging to, you know, if someone calls or orders online to have a really quality, good quality system for them to interact with, to have a menu that is reflective to different tastes and um, different curiosities, or to be so, you know, so niche into what you're doing and into what you're offering, not spreading yourself too far that you're able to capture those people that are looking for that type of food, AKA Mr. Beast Burger, people looking for burgers and fries. So 
That being said, I think it's an interesting trend. And, you know, there's reporting on this from Forbes and all these different um, outlets. And I think I think uh, for restaurants, you know, not being in the restaurant industry anymore, but covering it weekly and daily, uh, a lot of times when we see businesses like this do really well, uh, we don't really think of it much because it's like, oh, this is like, you know, he's a YouTube influencer, just mass marketing, uh, crappily made burgers and like, what the hell is that? But in a post-COVID era, and as restaurants, you know, deal with automation, AI, more and more Google search, more things going online, more things trending digital, stuff like this is super important. As an operator, you need to be aware of this. As someone who's interested in food business, in food in general, you need to be aware of this. Because we're getting to points where more and more ordering is done online, and I know we want to keep that idea that the guests always love the physical experience, but oftentimes it's ordering takeout, it's ordering off of... Uh, third-party delivery and it's ordering or it's ordering from a restaurant that offers delivery but at the end of the day as things get more and more online more and more automated it's like how do we stand out and what lessons can we learn from something like this and so that's why I wanted to cover it today you know it's it's astounding to me to see the influencer economy being catapulted into the restaurant sector I think it further divides people from mass-produced food to the independent restaurant you want to go you know serve but per the National Restaurant Association this is a statistic by them. 55% of adults say food e-commerce is an essential in their life. An essential. Many investors in large brands, though, um, over the last few years have kind of lost confidence in that. And so it's interesting to see how it shakes out. A good example is Wendy's. Uh, they recently like decreased their digital footprint. Uh, and I really think that a lot of these digital brands do rely on that celebrity and like the novelty of what they're serving. But overall, 55% of adults in the U.S. saying that e-commerce is an essential, that's something we should be really paying attention to. And it's something that really shifts to where diners are at, where are people at in general. And so for me, looking at a play, uh, business like Mr. Beast Burger, looking at the success, looking at the impact of food, looking at the impact of what it's had on the food industry as a whole, you know, I think that as someone who would probably never, ever consider, like, I, you know, I wasn't even thinking about Mr. Beast Burger for the longest time. As I started to think more about the success and I started to see it online and I started to see it and I like it's been around for three years now, almost three years, and it's still growing and it's still doing extremely well. He's proving out that he's not it's not just a flash in the pan. It wasn't just something that happened in twenty twenty and then here it is. Like to go from three hundred digitally digital locations to seventeen hundred now in twenty twenty three, like things are moving and they're growing. And as the digital you know, economy, the e-commerce side of food becomes more and more popular amongst people in the U.S., amongst, amongst diners and consumers, that is something chefs and cooks alike need to be aware of. Now, that being said, thoughts on this and how you can utilize it or what takeaways you can have. I think almost or a lot of restaurants have a lot of takeout and menu item options. And I think if you look at it from an operations standpoint, it's looking, it looks, you know, take a lesson that... The menu is very, very simple. Like I said, a couple of burgers, a couple of chicken sandwiches, and that is about it. So if you have a if you have a restaurant that has, does intricate food or does food that is, you know, obviously it takes more time than just like throwing a burger on a griddle, then you know maybe your takeout menu isn't reflective of your entire menu, but a shorter style of that menu that is easy for food to be taken out and easy for it to be transported. I know for many of you that went through COVID, this is obviously obvious news, but for those coming up, for those listening, for those who haven't had much exposure to uh, e-commerce and food delivery, I think it's super important to notice that. I think it's also super important to notice that 
it's okay. It's good to have brand recognition. You know, you think of the chefs that have made a name for themselves in the industry and then have gone on to do CPG goods and uh, different products and different uh, ideas within the food space. It's their brand that they're leveraging. It's the idea that when you order Momofuku Chili Crisp, you're getting a really quality product because David Chang and co developed that. It's the idea when you go and buy a milk bar uh, cookie in uh, Target or wherever you, they sell milk bar that the brain of Christina Tosi came up with that idea. And so you're buying that, you know, for those who can't visit New York but still want the milk bar experience. So as things become more and more digital, things become more and more where you need to go reach people. You can't just, you know, we can't rely on like individual locations. You actually need to go out and reach people. I think examples like Mr. Beast are highly, highly relevant. Highly relevant because they're taking over a large share uh, shares of food service that were used that we were like used to having in an independent setting or in a uh, physical location setting. So, lessons learned from Mr. Beast Burger. I just shared those. I don't, you know, <laughs> I tried it. Will I ever order it again? Probably not. It really wasn't for me. Uh, Cool packaging. That's one last thing I want to touch on. The packaging was was really cool. I don't know what it meant. It had like these like bears, wolves. I didn't really know what it was on the packaging, but it looked really cool. It it really did. It it was very like it was bright colors. It was you know I felt like you know it was really well done, like visually wise. Uh, actually, like food wise, it was all cardboard, so it was very moist. So that wasn't great, <laughs> but. Packaging looks really good. Uh, the, there was like, I think there was, if I'm remembering, correct, remembering correctly, there was like an advertisement for like, you know, other things he's doing. And like I said, on Uber Eats, you can also buy merch through them. So all that to say is that lessons learned, creative marketing, creative engagement for people, for diners to come enjoy your food. I think it's highly important. I think it's something that a lot of people need to be aware of in the restaurant industry because not being aware of it, I think is a negative and it leaves you uh, exposed. So make sure you check it out. I would, you know, go do some research on Mr. Beast Burger with success. You don't got to love it. You don't got to support it. You could hate it, you know, with all, like with everything in you. Obviously a lot of people hate ghost kitchens. I do think that they're problematic. I think that they're, they can be an easy way for people to capitalize off of uh, food market share. And at the same time, it could be a, you know, interesting way for places to make revenue, but I'll leave that for a different day. But go look at the success of Mr. Beast and the influencer entering the restaurant industry because I think it's highly important as we move more and more towards a digital e-commerce-based food industry. So if you have followed my podcast for any amount of time, you will know that I am not the biggest fan of awarded fine dining sectors of the industry. Not the people within them, but the idea that we define success of someone by giving them an award, or if they haven't received a reward, that they're not successful in award. Reward, award, messing up already. And so for me, a big part of, a big content piece for me over the last few years has been this idea that we need to get away from, you know, it's, it's tricky, right? Because the restaurant industry, it's all about external validation. Do customers like your food? Do customers like their experience? Do customers like the way that they were treated? But to add on top of that, a subjective award system that is like the yes or no to what makes a chef great, I think is kind of insane. It's really crazy because I think that a lot of people chase fame, chase accolades, and aren't really sure why they're doing what they're doing or might even be in the wrong place entirely because they're just looking to get an award. 
And, you know, I think the, the, the post I'm going to talk about, this is by the Washington Post, by Annabelle Timsit, when Michelin tells chefs they've lost stars, mental health is top of mind. There's a great portion at the bottom. And I want to read it. I want to read this real quick because I think, you know, it's really, really interesting um, talking about uh, Rene Redzepi basically and how, you know, it, it's the idea that he was named one of the best restaurants in the world and he has to shut down next year because it's unsustainable for how he's running his kitchen. You know, this kitchen that's been awarded so many times and has had so many accolades and has been best restaurant in the world has to shut down because it's not sustainable to employ people there. That's crazy. And so looking at this post, I thought it was very interesting because the post starts out talking about, uh, look, I, I'm not, I'm not great at pronouncing this. Uh, is it Guy Savoie or is it Guy Savoy? I'm going to go with either or on that and I'm sure I'll get corrected. But in this post, it's talking about how two of the world's most famous chefs, Savoy being one of them, um, he's going to be losing a Michelin star, and it will be downgraded from three stars to two in the Michelin Guide's forthcoming French edition, a demotion that can tarnish chefs' reputations and hurt their business, as quoted in the article. So in this, they talk about how um, Gwendo Pulinek, the guide's international director, hopped in his car and drove five hours to tell from Paris to La Rochelle to tell another chef about um, the restaurant losing a star and then also spoke privately with uh, Guy Savoie. So it's a practice that has, become, that has become a more common amid a growing awareness of the mental health struggles chefs can face while navigating the pressure cooker that is the high-end restaurant industry. And that is also from the article. And so going into the article, uh, they talk a lot about the idea of how important in the, life, the, the lifelong pursuit many chefs have of attaining three Michelin stars. And this is something that also baffles me too, and I'll get into it in a minute. But this immensely hard, immensely difficult, all this, you know, all the dedication it takes to go get three Michelin stars, it's insane. You dedicate yourself. There, there's no one can take that away from you. Like you are putting in so much work, so much effort, sacrificing probably personal relationships, sacrificing some parts of your physical and mental health to be awarded these three stars to cook food on quote unquote the highest level. And, you know, I think that's great. It's, and it's the issue with awards, any award at all, is, you know, if you do well for a guest, they come back. If you do well at serving people food, they continue to return your business growth. If you get a three Michelin star award, if you get awarded three Michelin stars, like, it's great. That is great. But what happens when the judges change what happens when the ideas of what good food is changes and what happens when they come in on an off day and then all of a sudden you lose one and going from three to two is seen like you know that can't happen the the perception of food quality goes down in the general consumer's eyes and the stress and the magnitude that that has on the staff is insane how the chef is stressed how that might affect business, how that affects people in the kitchen, how that affects the treatment of people in the kitchen, how that affects the morale of the kitchen workers themselves. It is such a negative thing. So I have always wondered, when you get to three stars, that is not something that you can continue forever. There's going to be a point where it falls off. There has to be. We've seen it so many times. And we've seen the devastating impacts that that can have on mental health and on chefs in general. 
some examples out there of people losing stars and having really serious, if not deadly, reactions to that. And so when we talk about Michelin and we talk about losing stars and we talk about awards, it's the fault of the diners, too, that we hold them in such high regards. It's the fault of the industry, uh, the people that enjoy the food industry, that we put so much pressure on what it means to be successful. And this is why I really think these systems need to go away. Because when you get to the top, that's amazing. Everyone's happy. Everyone's, you know, it's success, success is great. Everything's great during a successful time. But to think that you go from three to two, that your food sucks now, or that a diner's like, oh, well, it must not be good. You're really discounting, A, what two Michelin means, and B, the, the probably excellent food that is being put out there. You know, there's obviously restaurants that have gone from being starred to not being starred, but to go from three to two, you know, we see like, you would see a two Michelin star restaurant and be like, okay, they have to serve incredible food and three Michelin is near, is perfect, if not near perfect. But when it goes reverse, it's like, oh, that three, that two that used to be a three is not really that good anymore. Where technically in that rating system, the level is still extremely, extremely high and well done. But that's not how diners see it. And that's not how the industry talks about it. And that's not what chefs understand and feel when they're running these restaurants. And there's been examples of chefs asking Michelin Guide to take away their stars because they don't want that pressure and they don't want that lack of freedom, as some have said, in their kitchens. And so it's, you know, I think it's interesting that Michelin is taking a better stance into the mental health of the people that they are awarding or taking away stars to and from. And I think it's a good conversation to have for sure. But I think that there has to be a culture change in back of house, in front of house, and in the dining public as well. Because there is such a large just gap between the understanding of what food is for consumers and how it's actually made. And there is such an infatuation still with awards and accolades in a post-COVID world where during COVID, you know, newsflash, none of that mattered. You know how many times cooks message me and they're just like, I don't give a shit anymore about awards. I don't give a shit about accolades. Every time I do a podcast like this, like three to four people message me talking about it. And so I think it's interesting that in March of 2023, we're still talking about the mental health effects of losing a star in Michelin having, you know, to help manage that and also trying to bring awareness to it. Whereas instead of us having that, instead of us having a system that creates high stress, very high intensity working conditions that isn't sustainable as proven by many restaurants time and time and time again, in a system that kind of rewards the need for that extreme level of labor and care, why do we have it? Why is, does it exist? What, what is the benefit if we're going to award people a year and then take away a star a year later and their mental health is going to suffer and the team morale is going to suffer and then it gets to like, well, if the restaurant's not as busy, then they lose jobs. Like it has real world impact. Why? Why do we do it? And so I thought it was interesting that the Washington Post reported on it. It just doesn't make sense to me. I know a lot of people get upset when I say it, and I've talked to this with a lot of people on the podcast. It doesn't make sense. Oh, basing your career on awards doesn't make sense to me. 
I understand. Like I understand. Like I was that dude. I left culinary school and I wanted to be a three Michelin star chef. I wanted people to say that I was the best chef in the world, that I was awarded with the highest integrity of food, and everything else. And I really had to think about you know what my goals were. I had an experience right after college. I lost someone important to me in my life. Um, you know, made me rethink about like time on earth. And I just couldn't get behind anymore the idea that I was going to put my whole life's work into getting an award. Making food at a, like I don't, you know, I think a lot of the problems with fine dining is because there are awards and because there are systems. I think if fine dining existed in a space where we just celebrated it for the amazing food it did, and there wasn't all this pressure on San Pe- from San Pellegrino and Michelin and everything else that's awarded, I think I honestly think that it would be less of a hostile environment. It would still be hard. It would still inqui- require incredible technique. And then you can be like, oh, well, and what's the intrinsic value of doing it? Because that's what people like to do. That's the food you want to cook. <sighs> so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting. And I just haven't seen a lot of people talk about it. And I don't know how well the Washington Post put it out. But I thought it was important. Sebastian Bra, a chef who had one Michelin star, asked the organization in 2017 to take it away so he could experiment, quote, without wondering if my creations will please the Michelin inspectors or not. And also, he said, maybe I will lose notoriety, but I accept it. I will be able to feel free. So a chef like this, who wants to be creative, who wants to you know, do all these different dishes, doesn't want that constraint, doesn't want that pressure, doesn't, and what, what is the pressure for? You know, I, I liken it a lot to the Super Bowl. You know, Tom Brady, what, in 2020, 2021, when he was with the Buccaneers, he won his, like, sixth Super Bowl. You know, the guy that you know beat my Buffalo Bills every year. <laughs> I haven't realized the Super Bowl. I mean, as I, I think people, it's the same thing with like that. Like you win the Super Bowl and you're like on top of the world, and then five months later, when the season starts again, you have to prove it all over again. And then you know, like for me, like for me as a fan of the Bills, we've never had one win, and I know this is going into a sports tangent, but the Buffalo Bills is like my favorite football team. If we win one Super Bowl in my life, I will be pleased. And I, I promise you, I promise you, if we just win one, just one, I will be pleased for the rest of my life. But so many people, you know, a team, their team wins the Super Bowl, and the next year they're not making the playoffs, and they're, like, super pissed about it. And, of course, like, obviously being a fan, like, you want them to do well. But for me, when I see fan bases of teams that win Super Bowls, like, two, three years ago, I'm like, you just won one. Like, that's insane. You know how hard that is? It's the same thing with stars. Like, we're, we praise people when we get them, but as soon as they lose them, we – crap on them. We shit on them. We, their food's not good anymore. So as diners, as consumers, and as people as a whole, I will always say that do not base the value of a person on the awards they have, base it on the way they treat their team, base it on the way the way they conduct themselves, base it on the way they talk to guests and treat consumers, and then base it on their passion of food and the, the quality of the food that is put out. But all of it matters, and to put out amazing food through a way that is unsustainable and unfair to the people around you is not amazing food. It's food that is done in a way that is not that should not be replicated. So that is my take on that. It's a been an interesting solo podcast, and I would love to hear your thoughts. And I will post a link to the article in the description of this episode.
a little tired, I'll be honest. I just got back from Anaheim. I was out at the Food Show Expo West, an amazing show. If you are in industry and you've never heard of it, go look up Expo West. It's a great, great food show. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to get to go. And just so just spent some time out there trying food, you know, looking at new experience, looking at new recipe ideas and all that. Got back from California last week. This weekend was busy. You know, everything's been busy in life and work and all that. So this podcast is going out a little late. Sorry for that. Thank you for your patience. But um, yeah, I just want to say real quick, thank you for everyone listening. Um, just some behind the scenes. So the way I publish uh, podcasts is through Anchor, now known as Spotify for Podcasters. And, you know, we're, at, we're approaching episode 200. And one of the coolest things that I've been able to watch is the amount of plays this podcast gets. And we are closing in on a, a, one, a number of 100,000 total downloads slash plays for this podcast since it started, which is pretty incredible for me. We've also seen tremendous audience growth and a diversification of audience. We're only 80% of my audience, and I say only 80% is a lot, but we're, it used to be like 95. It's now 80, only 80% is in the United States, whereas this is being diversified outward, elsewhere to other countries. So thank you for everyone listening wherever you are in the world. And lastly, just wanted to say thank you for the growth in the newsletter, the growth in the Instagram, the uh, growth with YouTube, and just everything else in between. It has been a really fun year. I know I've made a goal to do 52 episodes this year, one per week. Ideally, this is the first week where I almost missed that goal, but here we are. And it is all because you all tune in every week, and I feel like I have a duty to put out good content for you all. So... Well, you know, I know there's sometimes there's discussions I have on the podcast that some disagree with or have different opinions on, and I'd love to hear it. So go email me at linecookthoughts.com. Go to line or at linecookthoughts at outlook.com is the email. Please email me there or DM me on Instagram at linecookthoughts. Linecookthoughts.com, you can sign up to my newsletter that I put out weekly, prep list items, information I've collected over the last four years that I share to you, the members of the Line Cook Nation. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a review. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I will see you on the next Line Cook Thoughts podcast.